Hey, cashiers. We Have the Receipts podcast is coming at you live from Netflix is a Joke Fest in Los Angeles. Chris, are you kidding? No, Netflix is a joke, Courtney, but this is not one of them. Our listeners in LA have the chance to join us for a live recording of our podcast, We Have the Receipts, hosted by me, Chris Burns. And me, Courtney Revolution. Join us and a few surprise guests from your favorite Netflix reality shows on Saturday, May 4th at 1 p.m. at a secret location in Hollywood. To be announced. Get your tickets for the We Have the Receipts live show at todoom.com slash W-H-T-R. That's todoom, T-U-D-U-M dot com slash W-H-T-R. Tickets are limited. If you can't make it to the show, we still want to hear your beautiful voice. Leave us a message at speakpipe.com slash We Have the Receipts. You may even hear your own voice on the show. Grab a ticket at todoom.com slash W-H-T-R. And we'll see you on May 4th in Los Angeles. Bye, cashiers. Welcome to You Can't Make This Up, a companion podcast from Netflix. I'm Ray Vada, and I'm hosting this week's episode. Here on You Can't Make This Up, we go behind the scenes of Netflix original true crime stories with special guests. This month, we're focusing on a scripted limited series that's based on a very real crime. Unbelievable follows two detectives, played by Merritt Weaver and Tony Collette, as they try to catch a serial rapist. Meanwhile, a young woman has been sexually assaulted, but both the police and her family and friends question her truth. This story was originally published as a ProPublica article by T. Christian Miller and the Marshall Project's Ken Armstrong. The series was adapted by Susanna Grant, Michael Shaban, and Ayelet Walden. For this episode, we have Kate Wells and Lindsay Smith, reporters at Michigan Radio and hosts of the podcast Believed. Their show follows the case of Larry Nasser, an Olympic gymnastics doctor who got away with abusing hundreds of women and girls for decades. They'll be speaking with unbelievable writer and showrunner Susanna Grant and executive producer Sarah Templeton. Here's Kate and Lindsay. Hey, I'm Kate Wells. I'm Lindsay Smith. We are the reporters behind Michigan Radio and NPR's podcast called Believed. It investigates how Larry Nassar was able to sexually abuse so many women and girls over the course of 20 years and why so many of them were not believed. And we are here to talk about the new limited series, Unbelievable. It's based on a true story of a young woman who reports a rape and then under pressure from police and the people in her life, says she made it up. And then detectives in other states catch her rapist, a serial offender. And we are getting here to talk with Sarah Timberman, the executive producer. You know her from previous shows like Elementary, Masters of Sex, my personal favorite, Justified, which Sarah like ruined all of human men for me for the rest of my life. So thank you for that with the character of Raylan <laughs> Givens. That's no great. one has ever been able to live up to that. And we also got Susanna Grant. She is a showrunner and director, longtime screenwriter. You also know her work from Aaron Brockovich, Catch and Release. So uh, Susanna and Sarah just sort of start me off with when you came across this piece, because it's based on a true story first published by ProPublica and the Marshall Project. How were you first introduced to this story? You know, I, this is Susanna. I came across the story, and and to be honest, I can't remember who put it in front of me or if I um, came across it myself in my own reporting of it, but I read it and immediately thought um, this was a story that would really benefit from a narrative treatment of it, and I sent it to Sarah, with whom I'd worked um, a number of times before, and, you know, she obviously has given her credits that just a fantastic producer of really quality material and said, let's do this together, and she said, you know, she actually had coincidentally received it from 
Islet Waldman and Michael Chabon, who had said the same thing. And so we all dove in together and uh, did it as a team. And we weren't the—this uh, is Sarah—we weren't the only ones. There were a lot of people interested in the story, um, also Katie Couric among them, who shared some representatives with us, and they said, maybe you guys want to jump in on this together. So Susanna and Islet and Michael and Katie and I all pursued this together. We all just had, um, you know, uh, shared the same feeling that this is a story that needed to be told. I think we were all just so— um, moved by the story and felt the urgency of it and were so impressed by the quality of Ken and T's reporting and their writing. It, you know, it just felt like it was a story that needed to be told. Yeah, I had a, a very visceral response to it. I tend not to think too hard about when something says to me, oh, this is this is an avenue you want to walk, you want to run down. And this was one. I was so moved by the characters. There's the, the character of Marie, who is a young woman who's been through the foster care system and has had a difficult time of life in her first 18 years and is presented with an incredibly difficult situation. And her determination to not let it bury her was just something I found so moving. And then the the two detectives in Colorado who doggedly pursued this case and really went so far above and beyond the job description to apprehend this guy, I also was really impressed with. And I, I thought I can I can spend a couple of years uh, writing these characters and bringing them to the screen. That's, that's time well spent. And then there's the larger issue, which is such a huge cultural issue. And um, you know, it's it's work making a show. And if you're getting up at four in the morning, you want to be sure that it's, it's for something worthwhile. And this really felt like it was for something extremely worthwhile. And if we can magnify the attention um, paid to this issue, that's great. You know, um, the reach of Netflix, you know, they're in 190 countries. So the idea of being able to tell this story, it had been so well told by ProPublica and the Marshall Project. And then again, um, This American Life had done an episode on it, also did a, a really spectacular job. But to be able to take advantage of the reach that Netflix has, the global reach, was pretty irresistible. And and I can say, back to Susanna's point about 4 a.m., you know, as a producer, you wake up at 4 a.m. and wonder and worry with a story like this whether it's in the, you know, hands that you can trust to tell it, you know, with integrity and compassion. And I, you can look at Susanna's track record as a storyteller. I feel like there is no better showrunner to have taken on this story because um, I can say it about her, but she comes at things with so much sort of compassion and thoughtfulness. And, you know, it's it's a daunting thing when you tell a story involving people who are all walking around out there and try to approach it with fairness and sensitivity. And I think, you know, Susanna just uh, did an extraordinary job bringing this story together because it's, it's you, you'd have to take the responsibility very seriously. Yeah, it's tough. Yeah, and that I think is kind of the pitfall of like anytime you want to take on sort of what we generally think of as like the true crime genre, right? And when you're trying to do it exactly like you said, you don't want this to be you know, somebody's pain and trauma used to just create entertainment. You don't want it to be just titillating. And for for us, I think we had so many questions and thoughts about especially this first episode. Uh, when you kind of go into this first episode, you enter right off the bat, 
you mentioned Marie. We meet her. I think she's she's supposed to be like very 18, young, 19 young, yeah. in this. She's eight, She's 18 at the beginning of it. 18. Yes. And she's sitting there, I think, wrapped in a blanket right in the aftermath of this rape, waiting for police to arrive in this bare bones apartment with her foster mom. And as she starts answering the police questions, we flash back and forth between her in this room answering questions and also throughout the entire first episode, very visceral memories of the rape itself. And I know that for Lindsay and I, this is something we talked about a lot and believed is is how you navigate that, right? Because you want it mm-hmm. to be visceral and powerful, but you also want it to be not just, you know, gratuitous. I can imagine that it, it became like very qu- specific questions of, do we need that shot? Do we need that shot? Talk to me a little bit about the decisions that were made there and what you wanted to come across. Yeah, you know, it was it was something um, I had a very strong visceral reaction to um, the the notion. I had never written a scene of sexual violence before. And when I sat down to write the first scene, I just knew completely intuitively that it could not be shot from a, an objective viewpoint. You know, I, I just thought no matter how well we do it, if we are outside of this experience, it's going to run up against the profusion of both hard and, you know, soft rape porn that permeates our society, you know, and it it can't, it can't do that. And there were a couple of things that were really important to communicate. One was the experience for that character. How do you, how do you communicate to an audience what the experience of an assault like that is for that character? And the second thing that was important to, to point out and is sort of a key to the whole series is the nature of memory after trauma, which is different than memory for those of us walking around day to day, not not traumatized. Um, the brain does really interesting and protective things. You know, memories get shattered and they get out of sequence and they become unreliable by conventional standards. And so Marie's telling of her story, it, it it's not linear and it doesn't all lay out in perfect this, then this, then this form. And some details are contradictory, and that's completely consistent with what the brain does in the wake of a trauma. And um, and that's something that it, it varies department by department across the country in, in terms of law enforcement. They're Um, knowledge of that and their sensitivity to that. You know, there's some cities that are really up to speed on how to handle and and question the victim of a traumatic attack like this. And there are some that just don't get it at all. So it was important to show both of those things. So the idea of showing very selective images from the rape and showing them completely from her perspective became... uh, like it felt like a really good solution to the challenges. And I think um, all of that was in the script that Susanna wrote for the first one and and in the subsequent ones. But Lisa Chilidenko, you know, really executed it beautifully. I think that her concerns were our concerns. And I think, you know, you have to be really um, make your actors with this kind of material feel very secure and Everyone needs to feel sort of heard and safe, and you have to be communicating really well with your cast. And um, these are hard scenes to shoot. And I think Lisa, I think she brings like 
an extraordinary degree of emotional intelligence to her filmmaking, and that was really important to this, too. There's kind of, you know, real emotional honesty in this piece, and um, I think that's sort of a, a hallmark of her work. You know, you talk about there not being uh, a way to shoot that kind of a scene, like in an objective way, but then we go into the hospital, which was also very cringeworthy for me, like just that process, the rape, um, kit. The yeah. rape kit at the hospital. It's like it's like you're almost still walking that line of not overdoing it or hitting the hammer, like hitting people over the head with a hammer or hammer about it. But that this is so hard and so difficult. I mean, there are some parts about like, I think I know about this stuff, but there was still some details in that that I just found so excruciating. Your morning after pill. Yeah. Yeah. We really admired how well this one of the benefits of being able to do this you know, in the series and the narrative form the way you guys did is that you really took us through the process, almost what felt like in real time, although obviously it was condensed, of what it is like when you then report a rape and how exhausting and monotonous and debilitating it is. You guys spent a lot of time on that. Tell me why that was so important. Well, you know, one of the things you hear, and you hear it so much that I I almost feel like it either loses its meaning or, or maybe was never really fully understood is how um, the investigation of a rape to the victim often feels like a second assault. And and people say it, and I thought, well, let's, let's really show why that is true. I had not been through that experience myself, so I, I sat down and got really educated on what happens. And, you know, once you learn what the details are, you understand what that means on a more, um, a, a level that gives it an emotional truth that I think gets gets lost um, or maybe doesn't doesn't ever land in the first place. So it was really important to show that. When people say that, they really mean it. It's not it's not just talk. And you know, interestingly, I feel like one of the things that feels hardest is how many times she has to retell yeah. the story. And it's it's not a physical. It's not you know part of the exam. It's not taking samples. But she but relives it, is, it every time. She it's, relives it every time, and there's n- no reason she should have to say it five times. When we when we screened the first episode at um, the Fifty One Fest in New York, and it was the first time we saw an audience experience it, there was just an audible gasp when uh, one of the detectives puts down the pen. And says, could you just write it down now? And, you know, I think what we learned in making it, um, for those of us who who haven't been through this experience, is that even under the best of circumstances, it can be such an unavoidably dehumanizing process. You know, even when it's you have skilled and trained detectives, even when you have conscientious medical professionals, the fact that a victim's body is treated like a crime scene you know, what that's like, you know, these are things that I think people don't understand. And and back to Susanna's point about the nature of trauma and memory and the fact that I think I read somewhere that I think in Kennedy's book that rape victims, um, that the way memory functions after trauma for a rape victim, it's like trying to put together the pieces of a jigsaw puzzle and missing some of the pieces. You know, you in a crisis, you sort of can fixate on one moment or, you know, something um, in a sort of act of self-preservation, and many things get blocked out. And 
as much as we all know this, I think on a broader societal level, people don't. They don't, you know, they don't understand that that's what happens. I mean, I think we've heard it in in recent times and things like, you know, whatever you think of happened in terms of those hearings with Brett Kavanaugh and whatever you think took place. It was so disturbing because we were in the middle of, I think, of post-production on this to hear people say, well, why could she not remember mm. how she got home? And then we were reading all this material and making the show, and it's like absolutely understandable that someone might not remember how they got home in the wake of uh, extreme trauma. So I, I think it's, you know, making it was an education for us, too. One thing, though, that and you mentioned that police detective and there's also the character of the foster mom, Judith, uh, who sort of first begins to sort of articulate some doubts and the Linwood police detective. It would have been really easy to set them up as kind of monsters or like really callous characters. But you're very clear in your depiction that even though you're indicting what they're doing, you're clear that all of their mistakes are coming in their minds from the best of intentions, that they think that they are acting out of gentleness and compassion and that their frustrations are coming from understandable places. Talk to us about the way you wanted to depict those characters in particular, the ones who doubted. And we want to know, too, if you talk to them. Yeah, the, <laughs> the actual the individuals. Yeah. Those two individuals we did not talk to. You know, we had the benefit of Ken and T having done tremendous reporting for their article and then and then further reporting for their book. So there was a trove of material. The other thing was that we the the characters are inspired by real characters and the um the actions taken are consistent with the actions taken in the real case, but we've taken some liberty really to protect the privacy of the people involved. But in terms of of the portrayal of those characters, you know, what this is is a cultural issue. It's not a couple of really bad actors out in our society. If we just get rid of them, we'll be fine. It's a cultural issue that every single one of us plays into to one degree or another. So it it felt really important to me to show that people with the best of intentions and good hearts can, um, by by going along with the assumptions that are made within law enforcement, um, within our culture about what a victim should look like and should act like, can make horrible, disastrous mistakes. And I just thought it was it's a lot more powerful for a viewer to be watching this and say, yeah, I could see myself making those same assumptions, and and then possibly looking at the understandings that, that they themselves hold about these issues. And Because if you just have a villain uh, who is nefarious, making these mistakes or, or bad calls, it's distancing from the viewer. And the truth is, I would like to implicate all of us in this, you know, I'd like all of us to look at ourselves and look at the assumptions we make and, 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 and make some changes, because it's not going to change otherwise, you know? So, anyway, yesterday morning she called and told me what happened. The rape? Yes. And I was just horrified, angry, upset, worried, all of it. I went straight over there right away, and I don't know, the whole thing just felt off. Are you saying you think Marie made up the attack? I am not drawing any conclusions. I just... 
I woke up this morning with all this stuff spinning around in my head, and I thought you guys should have the whole picture, the context. Another thing that is so powerful about that first episode is you see the impact that it has on on Marie of not being believed. And there's sort of the emotions that like we all think we would have a sort of you're heartbroken, you're upset, you're devastated. But then you also start seeing how quickly somebody can go to just needing this nightmare to end. It is Mm -hmm. Lindsay and I were talking about this beforehand, how hard that portion of the episode was to even watch. You just just, wanted it to be over. Oh, my God. And I (laughs) yeah. And I was telling Lindsay that, you know, I think because of our reporting previously that like I have no righteous judgments about this I like really get it but (laughs) I didn't even this total this episode totally wiped away this judgment I didn't even know that I had which is that like well but I would never recant a rape I would never just like we all think we'd never give a false confession I would never say it Mm -hmm. didn't happen and you really feel in this like you just want it to To end and you will do whatever the heck it takes to make that happen Obviously, that is what you wanted people to feel. How did you go about doing that? Um, Ken and T really laid the groundwork mm -hmm. because they, you know, their reporting of this was so strong and there was so much detail that um, just the facts of what happened in this case are so compelling. You know, that's that's what Marie went through. You just you. You go go into it with everybody sharing the same foundational understandings of what you're trying to create. And uh, if you have talented and, and in people working with integrity, sometimes it works out the right way. I have one last question, then I want to just hand it over to Lynn's here. So one of the things that really stuck out to me then about that second episode compared with the first episode, because in the first episode, we see this case go horribly wrong. And then in the second episode, it's very much set up as sort of the polar opposite of that. Another rape has happened, but here is how things can go well. And here is how like the polar opposite of how a detective could handle this case. One of the things that happened in the Nassar case is that it was a female detective and a female prosecutor eventually who cracked the case. And a lot of what they get asked or what we get asked about it is sort of like, well, is it because they were, they were women? women? Yeah. Yes. Like, was there some sort of like magic about just like their female empathy, et cetera, et cetera. And you, this is very clear about showing that it's not just about being a woman and having empathy. It is about really good Working, yeah, investigative really right. police work and that informed understanding. What what did you want people to take away about watching the detective in the second episode work. I'm I'm glad you said that it's not completely gender specific. I and mean, the truth of it is, those detectives in Colorado had so much more experience in investigating sexual assault than the ones in Washington. Uh, I think this was maybe his second or third sexual assault. He had, he had just come over from narcotics, the one in Washington, and and didn't have the training and experience that they had. So training and experience definitely. Trump's gender, I think. So we eventually get to meet Detective Grace Rasmussen, and is the character mm-hmm. in the series. How did you go about about merging the real life personalities and experience of these detectives and sergeants? And like, what did you add? What did you want to um, make to make this work? To make it to make the characters kind of blend in the way that they did? Because they kind of had this mentor relationship, and I'm 
I'm, yeah. you know, it's it's an effect that I'm not sure I read in the original ProPublica piece, and it's just something that struck me. We we didn't again, as I said before, we didn't want to invade these people's privacy and have their you know private lives broadcast to 190 countries. Um, that wasn't what they signed on for when they took on this case as as detectives. And um, so with their blessing, we did a fair amount of uh, fictionalization. But the core elements of their characters, I tried to hold on to as sort of bedrock principles for both characters. And then from those, built a relationship between them and personal lives that supported the story we were trying to tell. But those are, you know, those are, are some dramatic license in, in, in service of the story we're trying to tell. Was there anything in particular that, when you watch the series now, that you really feel like you guys executed in a way that you exactly, like you just really nailed it, or any kind of like um, really standout moments for you in this series? Like if you could only have people watch, you know, one particular episode, right? Like, or... or That's too hard. That's hard. <laughs> no, they're going to watch that. all eight. <laughs> I, I think, you, you know, our, our three leads executed every moment of this thing exactly as we'd, you know, better than we could have even hoped for. You know, I think that we just had three extraordinary women. And an amazing supporting cast. An too. amazing supporting cast. I, I tell you, though, you know, there's one moment at the end, at the very end, after the uh, after the detectives have finally caught this guy, and there's a scene with Tony. Did you, did you watch the whole thing? I did. Okay, so there's a scene with Tony and her husband in the car when she's finally gotten the guy. And it wasn't something she and I had talked about. I had thought a lot about the sacrificial nature of the work that these people take on and um, the cost, the personal cost that it can, you know, impose on a life. And there's just a, a moment at the end of that scene at which you you feel this really tough character finally show how much it costs her to do her job as well as she does it. And, uh, and I just, it surprised me in the moment and it was so brilliant and moving and so that's that's one that stands out but it's certainly not the only one in the show there's also a scene um i think i'm trying to remember which episode it's in it's in the middle and it's the scene in the in the truck outside his home where it's tony collette and merritt weaver in the front seat of a car for i think seven minutes Mm -hmm. and our director michael dinner who did a fantastic job with the the middle chunk of this series. Um, He is not a fan of scenes that run longer than three and a half or four minutes. And he was... And certainly not just sitting in a car. And he's a grouser. He's a a, a sort of delightful grouser. And he groused a lot about shooting a seven-minute scene of... Two people talking. Two people talking in a car. And it was was a beautifully written scene. And it was so um, just completely captivating to listen, to have a moment where these two women who've been so much about the job that they're doing, you know, let their guards down with each other and just connect is, uh, about their lives and their actual brush with each other in the past. And it it was an extraordinary scene. I mean, what do you think he's doing in there? Probably something really boring. That's the thing I was most struck by when I worked undercover. How fucking boring these guys are. When they're not out dealing drugs and assaulting people, they're just sitting around doing nothing. 
You know, we met then. Oh, you and me? Yeah. I mean, kind of. I mean, with Tony and Merritt, every scene is an extraordinary scene, but it was so lovely. And Michael, in editing, I think he had gone in planning to just chop away at that scene. He was like, I can't find anything to cut. Hmm. <laughs> there's just there's nothing to cut. Um, yeah. I, I think that, that the way that Susanna allowed that relationship between the two women in Colorado, our two detectives, to just evolve very organically over the course of the piece is a really lovely thing. And it was a whole other dimension to the show that I don't think, you know, we focused on so much when Susanna was writing. I mean, it was always there, but I think it it was brought to life so beautifully by Tony and Merritt. You know, it, it was when they part ways at the end of it, I, I was like a little bit of a gut punch. You know, these two women had forged such a odd friendship, a really unsentimental friendship and partnership over the course of this thing. And when they go their separate ways at the end, it's incredibly moving, you know, what they've been through together. So anyway, that scene was a sort of a great revelation. Yeah, it's worth it's worth uh, pointing out that um, there are very few places where you could show them a script that's got a seven minute scene of two people sitting in a car and um, the executive executives would say, hey, looks great. No notes, which is what they said about that script. I can't think of any place but Netflix that would that, that would, would react happen. to that scene. You know how many times I've st- shown someone a script that we're about to shoot and had them say, oh, it feels like a lot of talk. It feels awful long. You want to cut that. Not uh, That just doesn't happen at all there. They give you tremendous creative freedom and fantastic I, support. So that's I just like worth Michael thinking out. he was going to go at it with a big pair of scissors and was like, there's nothing to cut. <laughs> that's a really good scene. In that last, I feel like that whole final episode in at least I was almost felt like a movie and it could have ended the episode before. And I thought, oh, mm-hmm. here's the other episode queued up. The whole episode is like swimming in resolution. That's what how I've thought about it. You know, you get to see just sort of redemption in a lot of ways. And one thing I ached for was, you know, she has this really good scene where Maria is talking to the detective and gets this apology, finally really demands this apology um, uh-huh. and sort of takes back that power. I just so desperately wanted to see the same from this the stepmoms. Um, foster moms. Yeah, the foster moms. Yes, correct. Right. Like, it was like, oh, I didn't need this. And then once I started seeing all this resolution, I was like, give me more, give me more. <laughs> <You know>? <laughs> <laughs> well, that's interesting to hear, you know, that one is, is obviously something we talked about. And and again, um, there's only so much resolution one person, one can... Uh, one can show. But but the truth of it is we also wanted to show that this was two years later. Mm. And this was uh, Marie who ha- who was really living life alone at this point. Um, and so a lot of a lot of that decision to not show that was to show that she was at a different stage of life. And, and it's something we talked to Caitlin about a lot or I did in, in directing those um how do you show that that time has gone by and that those two years and I, I I think she's incredible how you can see the two years in her um when you when you meet her at the beginning of that next oh episode. yeah when she is uh, that shot of the of her at the DMV uh-huh. with her hair in a ponytail 
I mean, yep. she looks like a totally different person. Yeah. Yeah. She's really remarkable. And that's something that's really nice for this medium to be able to do, I think, like just in, re- in that reflection, right, of just her looking like a confident person that you pick mm-hmm. that up right away. It's mm-hmm. like the sun came back out in that scene. She's she. Caitlin is just you know she is just magnificent yeah, in the whole really thing. Yeah. You know it's a well, and it was what a role. It was clearly important throughout this that even if we didn't meet victims for as long as we met them, like with Marie, that you wanted these people to be people and not just mm-hmm. you like and and you wanted them to have moments of like having happiness. You know, even in the in the second episode, you you feel very much in some way that although something terrible and traumatic has happened to the second victim, that in some ways you think she is going to be okay. And I know that Mm -hmm. that's a a delicate balance, too, that you don't want somebody to be like a one-note victim, and you also want to show the whole person. I'm sure that that influenced a lot of decisions throughout the series. Talk to me about those decisions when you were meeting victims that we or depicting victims that we don't stay with as long as we stay with Marie. Well, there are a couple things we wanted to show. Obviously, in the second episode, we wanted to show how the process that Marie had gone through, um, what that would look like if it's done by a really responsible and sensitive um, detective and, and how it's different. So that was important. And then um, and also, you know, everybody is different. Every Everybody, you can't say this is the one way that people respond to a, a rape. And so it was important to show that the effects of this on the victims were as varied as the victims themselves, you know. And um, so uh, so then, you you know, you just have to have a, a real character with real, um, you know, flesh and blood and, and, and uh, emotions and a life and, and, and fill it, you know, as much as you can. And then uh, we also have an episode a little bit further in we we sat around when we were all working on I, I had, we had a great team of um, writers working on this, and, um, and and we all agreed that it was really important to show that the reactions to this evolve, you know, and that um, there are aftershocks, there are ripple effects that may not bear any resemblance to the initial response. So there's an episode later on in which you see how how these characters are are you know, moving through this and the different ways in which the trauma is sort of appearing later as they get further and further away from the initial assault. So, you know, you go in the, with those intentions and then just fill it as much as you can with, with what feels like real life. So for both, you know, Unbelievable and our project about the Larry Nassar case, Believed, you know, you're talking about serial predators Um and how they kind of, in some ways, you can see how these patterns sort of develop. There's this notion in the series about this handbook, right, the the, the textbook that she mm-hmm. finds. You know, I, I don't know if <laughs> if you guys can speak from this place. You're, I'm not saying you're experts on the topic, but based on that, what kind of patterns do you see and sort of take home with you? I mean, in shorter words, how, how can we... How can we learn from this in in really practical ways? Well, one thing that we discovered in research, and then there's there's just a great um, cover story uh, in the Atlantic this month that addresses this, and there's also been some other interesting reporting on it, is that the lack of communication 
between police departments and the lack of digestion of data and processing of of data just um, leaves law enforcement at such a, a loss. You know, there are there's a there's a there were some studies done in Cleveland recently that showed a huge percentage of rapists uh, of rapes actually turned out to be serial performed by serial rapists. Mm-hmm. You know, once they collated the data and and really looked at what they had at their disposal and and brought in data from different police stations and put them all together, they realized, oh, we actually have a few serial rapists. These aren't one-offs and that serialists are far more common than we realized. So that's something that's been made really clear to us. What's also um, striking and upsetting in the Atlantic article, which is just a great thing to read, is how much um, kind of apathy or even resistance there is to to process all those rape kits that the federal government started um, offering grants, I think, to process shelved rape kits that are, you know, number in the thousands in lots of states. And um, when they started to process some of them in several states, all kinds of things were learned. As Susanna said, that the number of serial rapists that people hadn't realized are out there is was a revelation. Also, certain um, preconceptions about, you know, the difference between acquaintance rapists and rapists who who attack strangers that, in fact, there's a lot of crossover between those two and that wasn't previously known. So it, when you step back from it, it's a broader cultural conversation about this crime and, and why um, victims are doubted and why some police departments are more diligent in pursuing these cases than others. And it, you know, it feels like we're in the middle of a what we hope will be a a very um, productive societal upheaval surrounding this crime. I mean, it's it is it's just staggering how many DNA samples are sitting on shelves all across this country that just need to be processed. And I mean, what for for a long time, I went along with the the belief that just people don't believe women, but the more and more I, time I spent on it, I, I thought, no, it, it, they just don't care. If they cared, they would process these kits. If they cared, they would investigate these crimes, and they don't care. So the idea of being able to do a series that will hopefully move people to to look at and feel what it is they are not caring about and maybe start caring seemed like a good opportunity. Well, and I think, too, um, I mean, that's great, right? Yeah. Uh, let's hope. Um, also, I think, like, just when you're talking about, you know, sort of the apathy, and I remember there's a scene, um, I think it's in, like, this, this the last episode again, or maybe it's the second to last episode, where Rasmussen is calling the guy, I think Detective Parker, and and is saying, no, I, I have pictures, and she sends mm-hmm. it to him. And, and like that it takes some kind of physical evidence like that, like mm-hmm. brutal pictures, right? And that's what it takes to get – it's almost like a there's a terminology for it. Like once you believe something, it's really hard to go back. Confirmation bias. Confirmation bias. Thank you, Kate. Um, I feel like all of this has got to be kind of wrapped up in why these investigations are so tough, or at least I want to think that that's part of it, that they not just don't, don't care. care. <laughs> 
But then when you have, you know, that sort of, it was just a very striking scene that it was like, that's what it took, was actual mm-hmm. physical yeah. evidence. Right, right. Something completely undeniable. Well, and I think that's part of the power of this series. And, and I think a little bit of what we tried to do with Believed is that you don't just make it simply like believe women and like have that be the end of it. That is that you really right. try to show... So what does that mean in real life? Well, it means investigations. Well, it means testing. Well, it means police work, et cetera. All of the mundane stuff that we don't typically see. And that's what you spend the majority of the series doing is trying to show what that looks like and why that's important. So that's a that's a powerful depiction there. Thank you guys so much for this time. We really appreciate it. It's a pleasure getting to talk with you and really looking forward to everybody being able to see this series. Thank you very much. And thanks for making the piece, making your piece. I'm excited to go listen. That was Kate Wells and Lindsay Smith of Michigan Radio and Susanna Grant and Sarah Templeton of the new Netflix limited series, Unbelievable. Thank you for listening to this week's episode. We'll be back next month with a new true crime film or series for you to add to your watch list. You can find this show on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, Spotify, and wherever else you get your podcasts. Make sure to subscribe, rate, and review this show. If you do, it helps other people find us. You Can't Make This Up is a production of Pineapple Street Media and Netflix. Our music is by Hansdale Sue. I'm Ray Vada, and I'll see you next time. Hold up. 